Amen. All right, well, we're there in 1 Corinthians chapter number 1, and we're starting a brand new book of the Bible uh, tonight. And I want you to keep your place there in 1 Corinthians 1 and uh, find the book of Acts, Acts chapter number 18, just a few books before Acts 18. But, but keep your place there in, in 1 Corinthians 1. We're going to read the first verse. Let me say this, uh, you know, as we go through the book of 1 Corinthians, we're not going to take one chapter uh, a week. Uh, because there's a lot of great things in this book that we really want to uh, slow down and be able to. We won't, we won't go any slower than we need to, but I really like to deal with these uh, passages in, in the context or the text, the points that they're trying to deal with. Uh, so tonight we're going to go to about cha- uh, verse number 17, and then we're going to deal with the rest of the chapter uh, next week. I do want you to understand that there is a main point in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, but along with that, there's a lot of great miscellaneous points that aren't really the point of the text, but they're just great things that I want you to notice. So what I'm going to do tonight is I'm going to go through all the miscellaneous points first, kind of just point them out to you and let you see them, and then we'll end by dealing with the main point of the text in verses 1 through 17. Now, if you're there in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I'd like you to look down at verse number 1. Of course, the Bible says this, Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God. And I want you to notice this name, Sosthenes, our brother. And Sosthenes, our brother. Now, if you keep your place on 1 Corinthians 1, go to Acts chapter number 18. And I think that Acts 18 is a good place to kind of start with the study of 1 Corinthians. Because in Acts 18, we have the story of the apostle Paul going to Corinth for the first time and really establishing the church there in Corinth. And I wanted you to notice in 1 Corinthians 1.1 how when Paul wrote the letter to the Corinthians, he said, Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God. And then he mentions, often he'll mention people that are with him, other books he might mention, Timothy or Titus. Here he mentions a man by the name of Sosthenes. He says, and Sosthenes, our brother. Now in Acts 18, in verse 1, notice what the Bible says. After these things, Paul departed from Athens, so he's leaving Athens, and came to Corinth, all right? So we see Paul coming to the city of Corinth. Skip down to verse number 4, just for sake of time. Notice what it says. And he, Paul, reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded the Jews and the Greeks. And when Silas and Timotheus were come from Macedonia, Paul was pressed in the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus was Christ. Notice verse 6, and when they opposed themselves and blasphemed, he shook his raiment and said unto them, your blood be upon your own heads, I am clean from henceforth, I will go unto the Gentiles. And we see there that Paul is practicing the idea of going to people that are receptive. You know, when they opposed themselves, he didn't, you know, beat his head against a, a brick wall there with them. He just shook his raiment and said unto them, your blood be upon your heads, basically saying, I gave you your warning. He says, I am clean from henceforth. I will go into the Gentiles. He said, I warned you. I've done what was required of me. I'm going to go to those that are receptive. And when we're out soul winning, that should be our uh, way of looking at soul winning as well. We shouldn't sit there and just try to argue with people that are trying to argue with us or, uh, you know, unreceptive. Look at verse 7. And he departed thence and entered into a certain man's house named Justice, one that worshiped God, whose house joined hard to the synagogue. I want you to notice the term there, synagogue. And Crispus, the chief ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his house, and many of the Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized. So notice, he goes to the Gentiles in Corinth, and the Bible says that there are many Corinthians 
hearing, believed, and were baptized. So he's having great results there. Look at verse 9. Then spake the Lord to Paul in, in the night by a vision, Be not afraid, but speak and hold not thy peace. For I am with thee, and no man shall set, thee to, uh, shall set on thee to hurt thee, for I have much people in this city. Talking about the city of Corinth. God says, hey, there's a lot of, of my people, you know, believers in this city. And he says, I want you to, uh, to, to feel the liberty and freedom uh, to speak and to not hold your peace. Look at verse 11. And he continued there a year and six months. So other places, he might spend a shorter amount of time there. But at Corinth, he spends a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Look at verse 12. And when Gallio was the deputy of Achaia, the Jews made insurrection with one accord against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat. And you always have to notice in Scripture that whenever somebody's doing uh, something for God, they're reaching people with the gospel, there's always going to be those who oppose you. There are going to be those who, uh, you know, cause insurrection against Paul. Look at verse 13, saying, This fellow persuaded men to worship God contrary to the law. And when Paul was now about to open his mouth, Gallio said unto the Jews, If it were a matter of wrong or wicked uh, lewdness, O ye Jews, reason would that I should bear with you. But if it be a question of words and names and of your law, look ye to it, for I will be no judge of such matters. Basically, he's saying, look, if he broke the law, if he did something wicked, I'll listen, but if you're just arguing about your religion, he says, I don't, I don't really care about that. Verse 16, and he, Gallio, drave him from the judgment seat. Notice verse 17. Then all the Greeks took, notice this name, Sosthenes, the chief ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat, and Gallio cared for none of those things. So, you know, it's interesting to read Acts 18 and to get a little bit of the background of the, of the, the church that starts in Corinth. But what's also interesting, if you make your way back to 1 Corinthians, is that he mentions, Paul mentions a man by the name of Sosthenes. And when you go to Acts 18 and read the story of the church starting in Corinth, we learn of a man uh, that the Greeks took by the name of Sosthenes, the chief ruler of the synagogue. Now, I don't, we don't know for sure if that's the same Sosthenes, but I, I think it is. I think this Sosthenes ended up getting saved, or maybe he was already saved uh, at this point. And he ended up, you know, just partnering up with Paul. And the reason that Paul specifically mentions him to the letter in, in the letter at Corinth is because of the fact that, you know, they would recognize that name. And this is somebody that was there living in Corinth with them. So I just thought that was interesting. Go, go back to 1 Corinthians 1. Look at verse 2. Unto the church of God, which is at Corinth. Now, I, I want to just, you know, point out several things to you. And I want to make, emphasize this because this is something that I've been asked a lot about. Uh, recently, and um, not necessarily here, but e even when I was at the Prophecy Conference, I had uh, somebody talking to me about this, and, and I, I want to make sure people understand, you know, what constitutes a church, because here you have the Apostle Paul. I want you to notice he's writing, look at verse 2, unto the church of God, which is at Corinth. He says, unto the church of God, which is at Corinth. So I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but I want you to understand, what are the characteristics of a church? What uh, makes a church. And one of the things we see here is that it's local. Notice he says it's at Corinth. See, we do not believe in the universal church. Today you have people that will teach the universal church. And the universal church is this concept that the church is made up of all believers. And that, you know, all believers come together to make up the church. And But look, the Bible is very clear throughout Scripture that a church is local. You have here the church of God, which is at Corinth. 
We are in the church of God, which is in Sacramento. There are other churches in different, but they're always local. And you need to understand that that is a characteristic of the church, of a biblical church, is that it's local. Not only that, but it's also an assembly. Notice 1 Corinthians 1-2. And unto the church, see the word church there? Church of God, which is at Corinth. So it's a local assembly. It's a, the word church means congregation. I don't want to spend too much time on this because I recently preached a sermon about the, the sin of selling in church and I went through it in detail. But if you want to write down these, state, these verses just for your own uh, notes, if you remember we, uh, several weeks ago we looked at Psalm twenty two twenty two, 22 where it says, in the midst of the congregation will I praise thee. And then we cross-reference that to Hebrews two twelve, where that psalm is quoted in the New Testament, and it's quoted in the midst of the church, will I sing praise unto thee. And the reason that those terms are used interchangeably, congregation and church, is because that's what the word church means. It's a congregation, it's an assembly, but I want you to notice it's a local assembly. So what makes up a church? A local assembly of believers. When believers congregate locally in Corinth, in Sacramento, but there's more to it. There's more to it uh, than just that. Simply, you know, congregating with believers does not constitute a church. And you say, well, why not? Well, you know, for example, uh, you know, just this last week, we were at the Prophecy Conference, right? And there was, you know, I, I think on, on the night that I preached there on Wednesday night, there was like 346 people or something like that. They broke their uh, attendance record there, you know, on that night. And, and that was at Faithful Word Baptist Church. And then the next day, we were, uh, for the rest of the conference, basically, we were at a uh, hotel, you know. And here's the thing, at that hotel... In that conference center, you know, they were selling DVDs, they were selling T-shirts, and I, I preached a sermon about how we shouldn't sell in church, you know, so, you know, you think I went back there and started turning over Paul's uh, uh, tables? No, I didn't, and here's why, because that wasn't a church, you know, and, and you could say like, well, that was a, a congregation of believers, that's true, but see, it was Paul's event, right? Paul Wittenberger put on this conference, now on Wednesday night, you know, we were at a church service put on by Faithful Word Baptist Church. But I'm talking about Thursday night and Friday night and Saturday night. Uh, you know, Saturday, we were at an uh, assembly hall in a hotel, and we were congregated with other believers. And you say, well, isn't that a church? Well, here's the thing. A church is not only a local assembly, it's also structured under the leadership of a pastor or some sort of a spiritual leader. Look at 1 Corinthians 1.1. Notice how the book starts. Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. See, if you and your buddies get together at a coffee shop and say, well, here we are, we're believers, so this must be a church. No, that's not a church because a church has to fall under the authority or the rule of a pastor or deacon. At this time, you know, when Paul was walking around, he was an apostle. We know he was the last apostle. There are no apostles today. But a church, you need to understand this, is not simply a congregation of believers. It's a congregation of believers under the authority or the authority structure which God mandates, which is a pastor, which is a deacon. That's what constitutes a church. You don't have to turn there, but in Titus 1.5 says, For this cause left I thee in Crete, that thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting, and ordain elders in every city as I had appointed thee. See, a church has to have a pastor or a deacon, uh, uh, an apostle, whatever, a, a spiritual leadership structure. It's not enough for you to say, oh, well, we're just getting together for Bible study in my house, therefore we're a church. No, a church 
falls under the authority of spiritual leadership. A church is an assembly or a congregation of believers, and a church is local. It's at Corinth or in Sacramento or whatever it might be. But there's one more characteristic. And, you know, I want to teach this because I feel like maybe people don't really understand these things. And I want to make sure you understand it. There's one more characteristic to a church. Look down at verse number three. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always on your behalf for the grace of God which is given you by Jesus Christ. Notice verse five. That in everything ye are enriched by him. Notice these two, uh, this phrase. In all utterance and in all knowledge. He says, in all utterance and in all knowledge. Now, what does it mean? What's the word utterance mean? Utterance or to utter something means to speak, to have something come out of your mouth. You don't have to turn there, but if in Ephesians 6.18, in fact, let's just go there. You're there in 1 Corinthians, it's not too far away. You got Galatians, Ephesians. Go to Ephesians chapter number 6 and look at verse 18. I want you to notice the word utterance, what that word is connected to. And I know you know this, you're a smart group, but let's look at it together. Ephesians 6.18. Ephesians 6.18, Paul is speaking to the church at Ephesus a local congregation of believers, and he's putting in his prayer request, right? Just like we prayed tonight, you know, and we had our church people put in their prayer requests and we prayed for them. Notice what he says, Ephesians 6, 18, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. Notice verse 19, and for me. So he's talking about the fact that, that they're praying always, and then he says, here's how you can pray for me. Here's my prayer request. And for me, notice what he says, that utterance may be given unto me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. And by the way, that's what soul winning is, is when you open your mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. Soul winning is not standing on the corner, on a street corner with a sign. Soul winning is not putting a, 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 you know, a door hanger on a door. Soul winning is when you confront somebody with the, gospel, with the gospel. And here he says, that utterance may be given unto me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. Now, go back to 1 Corinthians 1. Look at verse 5. That in everything ye are enriched by him in all utterance. So when he uses the word utterance, what is he talking about? That utterance may be given unto me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. See, next to that word utterance, you can write this word, reach, right? Because what are we supposed to do as a church? We're supposed to fulfill the Great Commission, and we reach people with the gospel of Christ, but that's not it. That's not all. Notice what he says, in all utterance, and then he says this, and in all knowledge. See, the Bible says, but grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. See, if you wrote next to the word utterance, if you wrote the word reach, you know what you can write next to the word knowledge? You can write this word teach. And you know, everything we do as a church should fall under those two categories. We're either reaching people or we're teaching people. We're either going out and getting them saved or we're bringing them into church and teaching them and helping them grow in knowledge. And here's what you need to understand. You say, what does that have to do with the church? I want you to understand this. What constitutes a church? It is a local assembly of believers under the authority of a pastor or deacon that are, that are banded together for the furtherance of the gospel. Look, if we're not reaching people with the gospel, we're not a church. And, you know, I hate to break it to you, but most of these places that call themselves churches, and a lot of them don't even call themselves that anymore, just, you know, worship centers or whatever. They're not churches because they're not reaching anybody. You know, what? you say, what makes up a church? A church 
comes together, bands together, for what purpose? For the furthering of the gospel, that utterance and knowledge may increase, that we may go out and reach people and that we may bring them in and teach them. That's, so, you know, back to the prophecy conference. Were we there banded together for the, you know, were we banding a group of believers there and we're going to reach that area? No, we were there because we were there for a conference. You see what I'm saying? You say, was there soul winning? Yeah, it's interesting. The soul winning was done at Faithful Word Baptist Church. So, you know, you need to understand because people get confused and they're like, oh, you know, this is a, 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 a church service when we're here or, you know, when I meet with my friends at a coffee shop, that's a church service. No, hey, a church is a called out assembly, a congregation of believers locally under the authority of a pastor for the fulfilling of the Great Commission. You need to understand that. You know, so, you know, so these home churches that have no pastor, don't want a pastor, they're not churches scripturally. And obviously, you know, let me go in and answer the stupid questions because people are going to ask, you know, send emails. Obviously, if a pastor, you know, if I just died tomorrow, you know, um, just in some accident or whatever, that doesn't mean this is no longer a church. Obviously, but here's the thing. If you just stayed without a pastor, this would be no longer a church. You know, obviously, someone has to uh, take the position and the leadership of a church, and, and there would be men, you know, to help you with that, other pastors and all that. But, you know, that's what constitutes a church. So I just want to make sure you understand that. Go, go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Let me give you another kind of miscellaneous thought or point that we can learn from this passage before we get into the main point. 1 Corinthians 1, 2, notice what it says. Unto the church of God, which is at Corinth, notice what it says. To them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, notice these words, called to be saints. Who's ever heard that word before, saints or a saint? You know, usually when we think of a saint, we think of what the Catholic Church teaches us a saint is. You know, it's a picture of somebody on some candle, right? We li- you light the candle. I was never Catholic, so I never did that. But, you know, you've got your little candle with a picture of Saint whatever, and you light that. You know, and, not a- and-, and saints are only these good Catholics, you know, if they, you know they-, they become saints after they die. But here's the thing. What does the Bible say? Notice 1 Corinthians 1, 2. Unto the church of God, which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. So he's saying, I'm writing to the church of God, I'm writing to the church of God, which is at Corinth, and by the way, them, they are sanctified in Christ Jesus, and them, or they, are called to be saints. So he's telling us, hey, the church at Corinth, the members, the congregation at Corinth are saints. They're called to be saints. But then he takes it further. Notice what he says. With all, he says, not just them. He says, they're called to be saints. They're sanctified with all with everyone else, with anyone else, that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, both theirs and ours. So what do you say? Here's what he's saying. Anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord is a saint. So is the Catholic Church right? When they say, oh, no, only you know, the good Catholic, the one we chose, if we put your picture on the candle, that's how you know that you're a saint. No, look, anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord is a saint. You're looking at a saint tonight. And it's not because I'm, you know, good. It's because, you know, my sins have been forgiven because I called upon the name of the Lord. You're a saint if you've called upon the name of the Lord. And let me, let me just emphasize something else here. Notice, notice the word in verse 2, 
unto the church of God, which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all that in every place. Notice that he doesn't say, you know, why doesn't he just say, with everyone who's saved, or everyone who's a believer? But notice he emphasizes something that Paul often emphasizes, with all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. There's an emphasis in Scripture that we must call upon the name of the Lord in order to be saved. Go to the book of Romans, Romans chapter number 10, just one book before the, uh, 1 Corinthians. Romans chapter number 10, and look at verse number 9. Let me, let me just talk about this, and I understand that this is all, you know, maybe review for some of you, but I feel like every once in a while we should just review some of these things and help you understand them, remind you. You know, today we're often accused by people that aren't even saved, number one, you know, that we're adding works to salvation when we tell people that they must call upon the name of the Lord to be saved or that they, you know, that we lead them through a sinner's prayer and we say, hey, pray and ask Jesus. And they'll say, well, you know, I don't have to pray to be saved, you know. It's just believe on, believing if I just believe, that's enough. And here's the thing. Salvation is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Absolutely. We believe that. But look, we're also not just going to ignore Scripture after Scripture where God tells you that you must call upon the name of the Lord. You're there in Romans 10, look at verse 9. Romans chapter 10 and verse 9. The Bible says this, that if thou shalt, notice the word, confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. And people say, well, I can believe in my heart and never confess. And here's what I would tell people. If you've got a problem with Romans 10, 9 telling you you've got to confess, I don't believe you believe. Because look, if you're putting your faith in Jesus Christ and he says, hey, can you confess with your mouth? No, I'm not going to do that. You're already fighting with God. He says that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God has raised from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Verse 10, for with the heart man believeth unto righteousness. Notice the emphasis. And with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture saith, whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. For therein is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich. Notice, unto all that call upon him. You have to call. He says call upon him. Verse 13, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Amen. And you know, I, the, the way that I, because people get all hanged, hung up on this, like, well, you know, if I have to pray, if I have to call, then that's a work. And you know, the illustration that I often use to try to help people with this is, imagine, you know, just think of someone who's drifting out at sea. And look, isn't salvation often likened to that in Scripture? Don't we sing songs like, you know, I was sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore, right? Um, Love lifted me. Then the captain of the sea heard my despairing cry. From the water lifted me, now safe am I. Don't we sing songs? I, I grabbed this song here, like Ship Ahoy. I was drifting in a, uh, a way on life's pitiless sea, and the angry waves threatened my ruin to be. When away at my side, there I dimly described a stately old vessel, and loudly I cried, Ship ahoy. Don't we sing that? Ship ahoy. What does that, what does that mean, ship ahoy? It's like, it's a sailing term that people would use to get the attention of a ship. When they saw a ship, off, uh, uh, you know, afar off, and they, they were trying to hail that ship or get attention, they would say, Ship ahoy! 
trying to get the attention. You know the song that we sing, O soul sinking down, need sin's merciless wave, the strong arm of our captain is mighty to save, then trust him today, no longer delay, board the old ship of Zion, and shout on your way, Jesus saves, right? And, and here's what I tell people, envision somebody who's just drifting out at sea, right? They're sinking, their ship sank, they're just, there's no hope, and all of a sudden they see a, a ship just cross, you know, and they start saying, ship ahoy! You know, help me! Save me! Now here's the thing. You think that person's going to get saved if they're like, well, look, I see that ship. I believe that ship could save me, but I'm not going to call because that would be worse. No, that's stupid. Look, if you're drifting out, if you need help, you say, help! You get someone's attention. You call for help. You call, and that's what the Bible is saying about salvation, that you're drifting out in sin, that you are like shipwrecked. You can't save yourself. And here comes along the Lord Jesus Christ, and he says, just call and I'll save you. And we call upon the Lord. Now, look, if you were out at sea, you're out for like 30 days out at sea. Some ship passes by and you say, ship ahoy! Help! And the captain hears you and he turns around and he sends a lifeboat, the soul winner, right? And he brings you up on the ship. You know, you get back to shore and the, and the you know, the reporters want to get your story. You, you think it would make sense for the person to say, you know, if they're like, how were you rescued? And they're like, well, I saved myself. How did you save yourself? Well, I called. I did the work. No, you didn't save yourself by calling. Do you understand that? And today people say like, oh, well, if you tell people they have to call upon the name of the Lord, you're adding works to salvation. No, look, you're just calling and asking to be saved. That's the whole point. And that's why the Bible emphasizes over and over again that you must call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. Because it's not enough to just understand that you're a sinner and you need a Savior. It's not enough to say, I believe. You have to actually call and put your trust in Him and, and tell Him, I want to be saved. That's what salvation is. And, look, and if you say, well, you're preaching heresy, then what are you going to do with all the verses that say, with the mouth confession is made unto salvation? Unto all that call upon Him, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You know, people want to argue about these things. Why don't you just pray and ask Jesus to save you? Humble yourself. You know, to me, if you've got a problem with step one, I'm just, I just walk away from those people. I just think, you're not even saved. You know, and maybe they are saved. I don't know, but it feels up to me. I would, I, you know, if it was up to me, I'd be like, hey, you never called? I never knew you, right? Anyway, 1 Corinthians 1, look at verse 6. Here we see an emphasis on calling upon the name of the Lord, calling upon him. You can't get away from it. And look, if you don't believe that, then you've you got to figure out how are you going to explain away all the verses that talk about calling upon God, confessing with your mouth, believing in your heart, con- making you know, with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. All those verses are there, so we shouldn't ignore those. And look, if you're soul winning at Verity Baptist Church, you need to be, you know, telling people that they have to call upon the Lord and you need to be uh, doing the sinner's prayer and all of that. That's what we believe. That's what we've always believed. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, look at verse 6. There's another kind of miscellaneous thought that's thrown in here. Even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that ye come behind in no gift, waiting, notice what he says, waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here he talks about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 8. Who shall also confirm you unto the end. Notice that ye may be blameless in the day of 
of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's interesting because in the Bible, you will often, you know, a couple of times you see in Scripture where the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ is mentioned with the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's also another, you know, thing that's thrown into that, not only the coming of the Lord, not only the day of the Lord, but also the fact, notice verse 8, who shall also confirm you unto the end, that ye may be blameless. Now, let's, let's look at this together just to kind of show you some cross-references. Go to Philippians chapter number 1. Philippians, you're there in 1 Corinthians, you're going to go past Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. Philippians chapter number 1, and uh, look at verse number 6. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6. Philippians 1, 6, notice what the Bible says, being confident of this very thing, that he, that he is God, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it, notice, until the day of Jesus Christ. Now in 1 Corinthians 1, he says, who shall also confirm unto the end that ye may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So there's this idea about the day of the Lord Jesus Christ being a day when the work that he's doing in us will be done, will be blameless, it'll be the end, you know, his work will be done. But also notice the fact that in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, let's go there, you're there in Philippians, you got Colossians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. So in 1 Corinthians 1, I want you to notice, it talks about the coming of the Lord. It talks about the fact that he will confirm you unto the end. And it talks about the, the fact that it will be in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. In Philippians 1.6, it talks about the day of Jesus Christ and the fact that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. In 2 Thessalonians 2.1, the Bible says this, Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and by our gathering together unto him. What is the gathering? When will we be gathered together unto him? That's the rapture. So he says, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and by our gathering together unto him, verse 2, that ye be not soon shaken in mind, or troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter, as from us. Notice, as that the day of Christ is at hand. So notice, here in 2 Thessalonians 2, 1, we have a reference to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the day of Christ. In 1 Corinthians, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and the day of Christ. In Philippians, the day of Christ and the fact that on that day, he will have finished the work that he began to do in us. In 1 Corinthians, the day of Christ and the fact that on that day, he shall also confirm unto the end that you may be blameless. So, you know, again, it's just very clear in the Bible because today you've got those who believe in the pre-tribulation rapture telling you that the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and the rapture are two separate events. But here's the problem with that, is that the Bible doesn't say that. Over and over and over, God says, hey, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ is the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord, the day of Jesus, the day of Jesus Christ is the day that the work that I began in you will be completed. So look, what is that? When will the work that was begun in you be completed? At the rapture. When this corruptible puts on incorruption, when this mortal puts on immortality, on that day, everything he's been working on with us will be done. So again, we see it from 1 Corinthians, we see it in Philippians, we see it in 2 Thessalonians. So look, you need to just throw away the commentary, throw away, you know, the Bible college, throw away all the theologians that want to tell you the coming of the Lord, 
you know, is not the rapture. You're confused. No, you're confused. Look, either you're confused or the Holy Spirit's confused because every time the Holy Spirit brings it up in the Bible, it's the coming of the Lord and it's the gathering together. It's the coming of the Lord and it's the end of the work that will be done in you. It's the coming of the Lord and the day of Christ. And by the way, 2 Thessalonians 2, 2 says that ye be not soon shaken in mind or troubled, neither by spirit nor by word, nor by letter from, uh, as from us, that the day of Christ is at hand. What does is at hand mean? It means that that's the next event. He says, don't believe that the day of Christ is at hand. He's saying, it's not at hand. It's not imminent. They'll say, well, the next event in the prophetic calendar is, you know, the rapture. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says it's not at hand. The Bible says that there are things that have to happen before the day of Christ. And of course, you know, and I don't want to get into all that, but, you know, there's the falling away. There's a man of sin that needs to be revealed, the son of perdition. Those things must happen. Verse 3, let no man deceive you by any means. For that day, what day? The day of Christ, the day of the gathering, the day of the Lord, the coming of the Lord. All of those terms are used in those passages that that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. There is also such thing as the imminency of Christ. It's not imminent. It can't happen at it, you know, just it's going to, it's the next thing. You never know. You don't know when it's going to happen. No, the Bible says there are certain things that must happen before the day of Christ or the day of Jesus Christ or the day of the Lord uh, Jesus Christ comes. And look, when you look at the passages, whenever that day is mentioned, it's always mentioned with the coming of the Lord and it's mentioned with either the gathering together or the fact that the work that God is doing in you will be done. The fact that you will be blameless, that it'll be done, that it'll be the end. Go, go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Let me give you one last miscellaneous kind of thing we learned from this chapter before I, I get into the main point, all right? And the main point won't be terribly long. 1 Corinthians 1. Let's skip a few verses and go down to verse 14, and then I'll come back and deal with verses 9 through 13 as we look at the main point. 1 Corinthians 1.14, I thank God that I baptized none of you but Crispus and Gaius, lest any should say that I had baptized in my own name, this is Paul speaking, and I baptized also the household of Stephanus, besides I know not whether I baptized any other, notice verse 17, for Christ sent me not to baptize but to preach the gospel. So what can we learn from this passage? Here's what we can learn. Baptismal regeneration is a lie. Say, what, what do you mean by that? Here's what I mean by that. The, the fact that baptism is required for salvation is not true. You say, how do you know that? Well, because Paul said, you know, Paul, who's the greatest evangelist, missionary, soul winner that ever lived, you know, if baptism was part of salvation, you think he would be saying, I thank God that I baptized none of you. If baptism was needed for salvation? Look at verse 17. For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. No. Well, which one is it, Paul? Is it to preach the gospel or is it to baptize? Look, the, 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 the baptism is part of the Great Commission. When people get saved, they should get baptized, and then we should help them grow in the Lord. But baptism is not part of the gospel. Amen. Baptism is not part of salvation. The gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the fact that Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, who, who you know, understood, if, if anybody understands evangelism, soul winning, church planning is Paul, and he said, Christ sent me not to baptize. He said, Christ had been not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. He said, I thank God that I baptized none of you. 
because of the fact that they were, you know, they would have been able to spread rumors that he baptized in his name. He said, I'm glad I didn't baptize any of you. He says, I baptized a few of you. But he said, my ministry was not here to baptize. My ministry was to preach the gospel, showing the fact, showing the fact that preaching the gospel and baptizing are two different things. So, you know, today you've got all these Protestants and Catholics that want to tell you, well, you got to get baptized to be saved. Or these Pentecostals that want to tell you, you got to get baptized to be saved. Well, that's not what Paul believed. Paul said, look, Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. I thank God that I baptized none of you. You know what? I'm just going to follow Paul before I follow, you know, the Protestants or the Catholics or, you know, the Pentecostals. So there we see another, you know, just a passage that's just, you know, showing us. Now, look, that's not to say that baptism isn't important. God wants us to get baptized. You know, there's a picture there in baptism. There's obedience in baptism. But look, if you never get baptized and you believe on Jesus Christ, you call upon him, you're saved. You know, and, and you know what we see with the thief on the cross? You know what we see? We see him believe on Christ. We see him open his mouth and call upon him. He said, remember me when thou enterest into thy kingdom. But he never got baptized. But you know, Jesus said, today thou shalt be with me in paradise. So, you know, baptism is not part of salvation, and we see that in this passage here. All right, those are all the miscellaneous kind of, you know, just their uh, points that we can learn from this passage. Let's get down into the main point. What's the main point of this passage? Look at verse 9. Notice what he says. God is faithful by whom you were called unto the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, notice verse 10. Now, I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing. Notice he says, I'm beseeching you. He says, I'm begging you. He says, I'm trying to convince you that ye all speak the same thing and that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be, I love these words, perfectly joined together. See, he's talking to this church at Corinth. And in the book of Corinthians, look, he's talking to a church that has a lot of problems. They have a lot of sin, a lot of issues. They have a lot of wrong belief systems. He's going to try to help them with that. But the first thing he deals with is the fact that this is a divided church. There's division among them. And he says, look, you should be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Notice, he tells him, he used the word same three different times. He says that ye all speak the same thing, verse 10. He says... Uh, that, that, uh, that, that you be jo- perfectly joined together at the end of verse 10 in the same mind and in the same judgment. So he says, look, you should, when you speak, it should be the same. And here he's talking about doctrine and what they believe. He says, when you speak together, it should be the same thing. He said, what you think, what you believe in your mind should be the same thing. And look, when judgment is made in the church, you should all be on board. That's what he's saying. He's saying, look, everybody should be united that you be perfectly joined together. Verse 11, for it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. And he's saying, there's contentions, there's fighting, there's arguing. He says, that's not the way it should be. So we see that there's division through contentions. Go to Philippians chapter number two. Philippians chapter two, I don't know if you kept your place there. I meant to tell you that. You're not too far from there. Philippians 2. Notice what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 2. Philippians 2 2 says this Fulfill ye my joy. Philippians 2 2. Fulfill ye my joy that ye may be, notice the word, like minded. 
having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. See, here's what Paul is teaching the church at Corinth. Remember, we started the sermon with what is a church? A church is a called out assembly. It's a congregation of local believers under the authority of a pastor that have chosen to band together for the fulfilling of the Great Commission. But he's telling them, look, when you band together, when you join a church, when you're part of the church, you should be perfectly joined together. And he says, you should be of the same mind, speaking the same things, and having the same judgment. In Philippians 2, he says that you be like-minded of one accord, of one mind. And look, when you you become part of a church or you decide to join a church, you are in sin. It is unethical. It is wrong for you to come into a church knowing that you believe differently and try to cause divisions and contentions and try to bring up things. That's wrong of you. You need to go find a church that has all the stupid beliefs you have and don't come into our church and try to change us. Because look, we believe in eternal security. We believe the King James Bible is the Word of God. We believe you're an idiot if you think you're going to go fight Babylon USA. Okay? You're not going to overcome the Antichrist. You've not read Daniel. You've not read Revelation. We don't believe those things. It's wrong of you to try to come in here and try to change us. If you're going to be part of a church, you need to find a church that you can get on board with or you need to get out. But it's wrong. He's telling these people, like, you need to speak the same things. You need to speak the same things. Look, when Pastor Jimenez gets up and says, these thinking sodomites, you know, deserve the death penalty. That's what God said. That's what the book of Leviticus says. In the millennial reign, God's going to put them to death when he's in charge, when he's running the show. And then you come along and say, well, I, I don't think he's right about that. During the millennial reign, he's going to let the sodomites, you know, run around. Because the Levitical law is gone. You know, you know, I was talking about this with the guys. No, number one, you know what you're saying is we're wrong on the sodomite thing. And you, you, know, you, you want to bring them in or something? You know, let me tell you something. If you're a man and you're soft on the homos, I'm already, you know, just worried about you. Amen. I'm all, you know, when a, when a grown man is like, well, I don't know, you know, maybe this, I, I'm already suspecting you, all right? Because, you know, it's not normal for a man to want to be around those or defend those. It's this filthy sin. But you say, yeah, but, you know, I just don't think. But look, have, have we ever changed on that? In the seven years of our ministry, have we ever changed on our position on that? I can tell you this. We've not changed on anything since we started Verity Baptist Church. So look, you either get on board or you get out. It's not up for debate. You know, soul winning's not up for debate. We were soul winning when you got here. We'll be soul winning when you leave. You know, the, the things that our church believes, and here's what he's saying. He's saying, if a church is going to be healthy and strong, it needs to have people in it that speak the same things, that mind the same things, or believe the same things, and that also have the same judgment. You know, when we throw people out of here, let me just explain something to you. When we throw people out of here, and you're just this soft... You know, um, what was it that Pastor Anderson called in that sermon? Um, snowflake. <laughs> you know, you're the snowflake. Oh, I just don't like it when Pastor throws people out of church. You know, just get out. Amen. So I don't, I don't you, you think that if we don't agree, you should get out? Well, you should believe the same judgment. Amen. And notice it's spelled the way the Bible spells it. You know, you should believe the same judgment. You should believe what the Bible says. You know, you should believe what the word... So look, you say, well, I don't agree. I don't like it that they threw... Then, then you get out because you're not of the same mind. 
Because you don't believe the same things. Because you're, not, you're supposed to be like-minded. Notice verse 3, Philippians 2. Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory. And look, the reason that people come in and try to change, you know, and try to cause divisions, it's always one thing, vain glory. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Go to Philippians 3, look at verse 16. Philippians 3, 16. Nevertheless, whereto we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us mind the same thing. What, what's the rule? This is the rule right here. If you, you know, this is what we believe. This is what we've always believed. This is what we preach. We should mind the same rule. We should mind the same thing. And here's the thing. If you don't agree, that's fine. Just go find the church you can agree with. You know, if you, if you don't agree with this pastor, go find a pastor you can respect. Go find. But see, the problem is it's vain glory. The problem is, you know, there's people out there who think they're just smarter than everybody. They know more than everybody. Nobody can teach them anything. Nobody can tell them anything. Romans 16. Romans 16. Look at verse 17. You're there in, if you're there in Philippians, just go back past 1 Corinthians. Romans 16. See, today people think they can come to a church like this and they think it's like a free-for-all. Well, you know, the Trinity is up for grabs. Salvation by grace is up. Let's debate it. The King James Bible. No, we're not debating it. We've already debated it. We already know what we believe. You can get on board. You can get out. And obviously, we give new believers time to grow. But when somebody walks in here and they want to debate, you know, well, you know, should we be using the King James? Do we believe in salvation by grace? What is this whole baptism thing? No, look, you, we're, we've already decided. We're like-minded. We're in one accord. Amen. Is the pre-trib rapture true? We don't want to hear it. Go find a church that you can get on board with because we should have the same rule. We should mind the same things. Romans 16, 17. Romans 16, 17 says, Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them. What does mark mean? It means to identify them, to call them out. Mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned and avoid them. You know, the first time we had to do this at Verity Baptist Church, there was some loudmouth woman you know, who wanted to go around and tell everybody how Pastor Jimenez was wrong on eternal security. Say, so what did you do? Well, I called her husband and yelled at him, first of all. But, you know, after that, I got up and I said, hey, you know, the so-and-so family has been kicked out of our church. Say, I can't believe you do that. Well, the Bible says to mark them. You know, when you're going around and calling people and sending emails and saying, well, yeah, that pastor sermon preached, you know, that, the, the sermon that pastor preached, I don't know if I agreed with all of that. I think he took some verse out of context. You know, the Bible says, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned. You say, why do you mark them? So you can avoid them. So you don't go hang out at BJ's with them. So you don't go to Pete's Coffee with them. So that you can avoid them for they that are such... Notice, for they that are such serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly. Vain glory. And by good words and fair speeches deceive the heart of the simple. Isn't that true? The simple leading the simple. 1 Corinthians 12. Go, go back to chapter 1, verse 12. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 12. So we see that Paul is dealing with the church at Corinth because there's divisions because of contention. Why? Because there, there's somebody in there that's trying to cause them to believe something different, to go a different way. And he's saying, hey, be of the same mind. Be of the same, you know, speak the same things. Uh, have the same judgment. He said, be, be joined together. He said, you should be perfectly joined together. But then there's another division that he refers to. Notice verse 12. So he first talked about the division 
that comes through contention or criticism or conflict. There's another division, though, and that's a division that comes through cliques. Notice what he says, verse 12. Now this I say, that every one of you saith, I am of Paul, and I of Apollos, and I of Cephas. And this is my favorite one, the real spiritual ones, and I of Christ, right? So he says, look, there's divisions among you because your group is not, your church is not perfectly joined together. He's telling the church at Corinth, he says, there's these cliques. And some of you say, well, I'm of Paul. And others of you say, well, I'm of Apollos. And others of you say, well, I am of Cephas. And others say, and I am of Christ. That's the home church crowd. I'm not going to follow the authority of any man. I'm not going to get, you know, forget Paul and Apollos and Cephas. I'm just going to follow Christ. Notice verse 13. Is Christ divided? Now, here's what's interesting about that. All right, oh, go, go to, well, let's, let's run some verses. Go, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We're almost done. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, look at verse 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 4. 1 Corinthians 3, 4, notice what he says. I'm going to try to cover the division verses and now, so I don't have to deal with it again. 1 Corinthians 3, 4. 1 Corinthians 3, 4, he says, For while one saith, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos. Notice what he says. Are ye not carnal? When a church develops these little groups and cliques within a church, you know what all, that's, all that tells us about people like that is that they're carnal Christians. Are you not carnal? Say, well, why would you say that? Well, notice what it says. Who then is Paul? And who is Apollos? But ministers by whom ye believed, even as the Lord gave to every man. I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither is he that planteth anything, neither he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. Now he that planteth and he that watereth, notice what he says, are one. And every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, look at verse 6. Now here's what's interesting about this. Paul is using this illustration where he's saying, you guys are divided because you're saying, I'm of Paul and I'm of Apollos and I'm of Cephas and I'm of Christ. And, and, and those people might have been saying that, you know, but I think he might be using that as an illustration and they're not really saying that. Because remember, what did he deal with first? He says there's contention. And what was the contention? It was based on the fact that they were not walking in the same mind, not walking and not speaking the same things, not having the same judgment. Notice what he says in 1 Corinthians 4, 6. He says, and these things, brethren, I have, notice what he says, in a figure transferred to myself and to Apollos. He says, for your sakes. So what is he saying? You know, I believe he's saying this, that there's not really people at the church of Corinth that are walking around saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, but there's people walking around saying, you know, the pastor's wrong, I'm right, come to my little meeting, come to my little group. And Paul's not using those individuals' actual names. He's saying, look, I have in a figure transferred to myself and to Apollos for your sake. He's saying, I'm using that as an example. It'd be like if I went to a church that was about to have a church split, you know, and there's two rival leaders, and I went there, you know, maybe they called me to try to help them. I go there to preach, and I, and I start saying, like, look, some of you, you guys are divided. Some of you are saying, I'm of, you know, Pastor Jimenez, and some of you are saying, I'm of Pastor Romero, and some of you are saying, I'm of Pastor Anderson. But the people in that church aren't really saying that. You see what I'm saying? He's saying, 
Look at verse 6. And these things, brethren, I have in a figure transferred to myself and to Apollos for your sake. He said, I'm using an illustration. He said, I'm using that as an example. Why? That ye might learn in us not to think of man above that which is written. That no one of you be, notice, puffed up. Isn't that the vain glory for one against another? He says, look, within a church, be careful about trying to glorify yourself. Build yourself up. You know, and get your little, like Absalom, get your little group. This is my group. This is the group that I lead, you know. He's saying, look, there's cliques, there's divisions among you. And look at verse 7, 1 Corinthians 4, 7. For who maketh thee to differ from one another? Or what hast thou that thou dost not receive? Now, if thou didst receive it, why dost thou glory as if thou hadst not received it? Here's what he's saying. Anything you have, any talent you have, any ability you have, came to you from God. So don't lift yourself up like you're something special. He says, you know, anything you have, every good gift cometh from above. Anything you have comes from God. So he says, he's telling them, hey, there's divisions among your church. He says, there's, there's problems. He says, you're not speaking the same thing. You're not believing the same thing. He says, you're not believing the same judgment. He says, there's, there's groups and cliques. And he uses the illustration of Paul and Apollos and, and Cephas and Christ. But he tells them, you know, I, I'm using that as a figure. I've transferred that to myself and to Paul. He said, I'm not using the actual names. I'm trying to, you know, protect the innocent or, you know, whatever. He, but, but he's telling them, there's division among you. And he says, within the church, within the church, they should be perfectly joined together. You say, how, how can we be perfectly joined together? When we are of one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Because what's a church? It's a group of people, believers, that chooses to bound to get to, to be in assembly, they are bound together under the authority of a pastor for the fulfilling of the great commission. And look, every believer should be on board in a church like that. And when, when you get, look, none of us are going to agree 100% on, on, on everything. You know, obviously, we're not going to agree on everything. But you need to get on board with a church that you can agree with. And if, you, if there's major issues, I'm not just talking about our church. I'm talking about any church, people listening online. If you're in a church and there's just these major issues, you're just constantly causing contentions. You've got your little group that you're trying to tell all the pastors wrong, even if it's true, even if it's pre-trib rapture. You know, that's not your place. You're causing divisions among that church. Offense is contrary to the doctrine which you have learned. That's not the ethical way to go about it. That's not the right way to go about it. You know, going to your little clique, you know, meeting somewhere and having your little group, that's not ethical. That's not right. The Bible always uh, condemns that. It's not right. And and that's what he's saying. He's saying, like, make sure there's unity. So you know what? At Verity Baptist Church, and here's the thing. We have more unity in this church right now than we've had in a long time. And praise the Lord for it. But, you know, let's make sure that we love each other that we care for each other, that we're not puffed up one against another. Make sure that you don't have any ill feelings towards, you know, people or you're, you're just trying. You know, you'll always have the people that are trying to lift themselves up. But here's the thing. In order to lift themselves up, they have to pull others down. Criticize the pastor. Criticize the staff. Criticize the pastor's wife or criticize the staff wives or, you know, whatever. Criticize the, you know, you put someone in charge of some ministry and then it's like, ah, they're not doing it right. I would do a better job. Okay, Absalom. Well, don't, don't get all puffed up for vainglory, all right? 
Just we ought to be perfectly joined together. We ought to be working together for the faith of gospel. Let's buy our time. Prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for uh, these scriptures. And Lord, thank you for the church at Corinth that we, you've allowed us to be able to see uh, the, the letter there written by Paul to them, inspired by the Holy Spirit, because it's not only for the church at Corinth, it's for every church. And we can learn from it, Lord, and I pray that you would help us to always have a group of people that are just keeping the main thing the main thing, that we're always, you know, interested in reaching people, teaching people, that we love each other, that we're not puffed up against each other, Lord. I pray you'd help us not to be gossiping or criticizing or being critical of each other. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us to be fitly, perfectly joined together. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.